so I had a great Christmas break and uh, got to relax a little bit, got to take a little time off. I was uh, returning a movie. Um, we still rent movies occasionally rather than just stream all the time and actually go out and interact with the public. It's amazing if you do that sometimes. Anyway, I, I was returning the movie to a red box and I hit the return thing on the screen and I'm trying for like 30 seconds to get this movie back into that little slot, you know, that it goes into. And, and I cannot, no matter which way I turn, I can't get it to go when I suddenly realized and remembered we rented this from Family Video. <laughs> That rectangle box, and, I, and I'm like, I'm just waiting, like, how many YouTube videos are going to show up? Look at this moron. He doesn't even know how to operate the red box station, you know, posting the videos. I felt like a real idiot. And, uh, and then I, I thought about this. I thought, well, I could probably use this somehow in a teaching. And, and I thought, you know, a lot of us are actually living our lives this way. We are trying to fit our lives into some kind of idea or some kind of formula or maybe to fit our families or something or, or the way it's supposed to look. And we're trying to fit ourselves into what it's supposed to look like. You know, we, we think, well, we could always be a little bit happier or we could always maybe be a little bit more um, content with our financial situation or have greater job satisfaction. Uh, we could have healthier relationships or, or healthier bodies or more peace of mind. And so maybe we, we start a new prescription or we start a new uh, discipline of some sort or a new, di- a new diet, a new commitment. And we're like twisting ourselves in our lives and trying to get them into some idea. And we just can't seem to quite make ourselves fit into this idea that we have of the way things should be. And it occurred to me, what if we're trying to fit ourselves into something that we were never designed to fit into? I mean, what if we stopped and considered whether we're actually standing and in the right place and trying to fit ourselves into the right place? We know that our world is broken. So what if instead of trying to fit ourselves into something that's maybe broken and always focusing on what's wrong with us or what's wrong with the world. We started maybe fixing our eyes on what's right in God's world. What if we started maybe noticing the beauty of God's world all around us, his presence in our lives? And then what if, what if we more fully participated in that beauty and joined in that beauty? How might participating in that beauty transform us to fit more into his world, and what kind of wonder might that create in the world around us? That's really what this series, Beauty and Wonder, is all about. So I got, uh, I finished my vacation, and I I returned to work, and I I sat down at my desk, and and, and there's this list of to-dos already, you know, and all the emails and everything, and I, I could feel my heart rate starting to race a little bit up into my throat, the kind of this physical sign of stress and this sense of overwhelm kind of overcoming me and re-entry no matter when it is or what you're doing is always a little bit difficult. And, and I, just, I just said, stop. And I just, I just sat at my desk for a couple minutes and I just pulled out a devotional and I read it for a couple minutes and then I, and then I prayed. And this is, what, this is what I prayed. I said, God, help me not be overwhelmed by my tasks and responsibilities today. And instead, help me to see the opportunities that exist to discover your beauty. And, and I might be astonished again with a sense of wonder at what you're doing in the world and, and that I might be drawn to you in that wonder and participate with you in the things you have for me to do today. And I got up from that time of prayer, and, and, and uh, my wife said, so you ready to go back? And 
I immediately whined to her about all I had to do or something like that. Like I had, like I didn't, it didn't change the way I was feeling necessarily. My circumstances didn't magically change, but I did shift my perspective. And when I got to work, I started looking at the things that I had to do. I started getting excited actually about some of the things that I had to do, ways that I could participate with what God was doing in the work of the day. And it occurs to me that our mission at Orchard Hill Church is helping next generations encounter and follow Jesus to bless a broken world. I thought, how in the world will we ever accomplish this mission if we don't learn to look for the beauty and participate with the beauty of the life of Jesus in our world and the work that he's doing in and around us every day? I believe that the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is not only true, it's not only the greatest story ever told, but I think it's the most beautiful story ever told. And we've read a lot of stories. I remember when I was a kid, I read through all the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis wrote these. And I remember the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the kids enter into this new, exciting world of adventure through their wardrobe. But it's, what they discover is there's this world where it's, it's always winter, but never Christmas. I started thinking about, think about like Iowa. Like typically it's, it's six months of the year it's winter, typically, right? And, and, and like what if it was always winter in Iowa and it was, you know, never Christmas? I thought this is what the Old Testament was like, right? We had Abraham and we had Moses and we had David and we had prophets and people who who knew God, and they had a relationship with God, and they tried to help people understand with God, but they didn't really have Jesus. They didn't, know, they didn't really have Jesus to see or to touch or to hear about or, or what he had done or his life. And then Jesus comes on the scene. It's Christmas, right? And there's a sense of wonder, and we get to encounter God in the flesh. We get to see what this beautiful life is that he's inviting us into. We get to, we get to touch it and experience it for ourselves, and, 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 the, and the number one response of everyone who came to Jesus, like the shepherds um, uh, or, or the woman at the well who Jesus encountered or, or even the act, in the book of Acts, all the disciples, was this sense of wonder. People were amazed and perplexed. And wonder is defined as it's like a sense of astonishment. It's defined as the feelings of surprise and admiration about something that's, that's unexpected or unexplainable or beautiful. And everything about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection creates a sense of wonder. And when followers of Jesus discover and continue living out of his beautiful expressions of life, we too can create a sense of wonder that can restore and bless our broken world. Great author Dostoevsky said it this way. He said, beauty will save the world. Discipline knowing truth, believing right, all of these things are really important. But Jesus' followers participating fully in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that's a beautiful thing. That's something that that creates wonder, that creates curiosity, that invites people to come and see, to come and follow, encounter and follow. And it can change the world. It can save the world. It's a beauty that will save the world. Jesus not only invites us into this way of life, but, but he teaches us about it. He models the life for us, and he even gives us his spirit to help us live this life. 
And one of the greatest teachings is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, one of his friends, records this for us in his gospel. And it begins in chapter 5. And, and Jesus calls this, this teaching, talks about this teaching. He calls it the, the kingdom of heaven is what he's describing. This is what life is like in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And the first nine verses have, been, have come to be known as, as the Beatitudes. And they're really kind of what we're focusing on in this series. And from the very beginning of Jesus' teaching, we see that they make up the foundation of a world or of a life that is completely countercultural to our world and, and to the way our world operates and the things that we value. And this is what life looks like in God's world. My son Lewis was home over Christmas and he, he kind of heard what I was teaching about and he started reading the Beatitudes and he said, Dad, I, I, have, I have trouble agreeing with this. <laughs> I said, well, well, what part? And he goes, well, like, I'm reading these Beatitudes, and it says, blessed are the poor, or blessed are the poor in spirit. He said, that doesn't happen in our world. And blessed are the meek, and blessed are the peacemakers. He goes, these aren't things that our world values. We value competition. We value strength and, and going for it and those sorts of things. And it's right. He's right about that. And yet these are the foundations of Jesus' life and teaching. Eight descriptors of what life is like in God's world. And when we see these eight distinct and beautiful expression of God's character on display in others, we find this beauty that's astonishing. It's unexpected. It's unexplainable. And it flips our world over. It flips it right side up, saving it and restoring it. And before I go any further, I just want you to know that not everybody is appreciative of this. Not everybody wants to see this happen. The powers in Jesus' day, religious and political powers, they certainly didn't want to see it happen. They were so threatened by Jesus. And I would say that there's a lot of powers in our world today that don't want to see this happen because they also feel threatened about the way it flips the world over on its axis and it changes the axis of power and all of the power dynamics it's a dramatic shift in a lot of what our part of the world values. So it can come up against us as well and push us a little bit. Today we're focusing on verses 9 and 10 in, in Matthew's a gospel in chapter 5. And here's what Jesus says. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and I imagine, you know, he says he's up on a hill, and I like to imagine that the people are kind of all spread out. The crowds of people who are following him are all spread out below, and all of these people are living under the oppression of the Roman government that had promised world peace, and they may have achieved some form of, of peace, but they did it through abuse of power and through uh, brutal violence and ruthless domination. And along with making some form of peace, they made enemies and they made slaves. And Jesus says to disciples, you know, when you look out at your friends and your family down there, it's easy to conclude that they're on the wrong side of this equation, that they are losing and that the Roman Empire is winning. And I know that you're expecting this Messiah to come swinging a sword and lead this, this revolution that's going to establish a new kingdom and restore the kingdom of Israel. But I got to tell you, that's not the way it's going to happen. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. 
Blessed are those who make peace with their enemies. Blessed are those who break the pattern of violence and vengeance in this world. They're going to get persecuted for this, for doing what's right. They'll be called cowards. They're going to be mocked. They'll be labeled losers. (laughs) In my father's world, they are the children of God. They are the ones who, who are displaying his character in this world, and they will possess his kingdom fully. In fact, they possess it right now. They possess every advantage and every blessing that makes them enviable to everybody else in the world, and one day they're going to receive his possession in full. And it's a beauty that's going to change the world. I finally watched the movie Hacksaw Ridge, Overbreak. I don't know if any of you have seen this movie, but it's the movie about Desmond Doss, who was an army medic in World War II. And after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, he just felt committed to join the cause and, and to join the efforts to end the aggression of another empire making a grab for power and domination. And there, he had a couple hurdles to overcome. One was his dad didn't want his boys joining the war effort because he had seen firsthand in the first war how painful that was and the suffering that it entailed. And the second big issue for Doss was that he refused to participate in any kind of violence, any kind of killing, or even using any kind of weapon at all because of his deep personal and religious convictions. So he heads to basic training, and he gets persecuted. He gets called a coward. They restrict his leave so that he even misses his own wedding day. He was supposed to be on leave, go get married. He misses his own wedding day. And then he comes back, and they beat him up. And physically just, just pound him. And then they, they threaten to court-martial him, and they take him to court, and they threaten to kick him out of basic altogether, and yet no one is more committed to, to fighting for peace than this young man. And he ends up on the front lines. Spoiler alert, you haven't seen it? I'm going to tell you what happened. So he's, he's on the front lines, and he has no weapon, and there's flames there's flamethrowers, and there's bullets flying, and, and, and there's just uh, grenades exploding all over the place. And if you don't like violence, don't watch the movie because it's pretty brutal. It's hell on earth. And Doss is up there without any weapon at all. And he keeps dragging these men to safety with bullets flying all around him and things exploding. And then at, some, at one point, the army retreats and they, they get back down this, this ridge, this cliff, 300 feet down. And he's left up there alone with enemies all around him. And he continues to go out and drag guys to safety. And he drags them over to the ridge and he lowers them down one by one, 300 feet. He belays them down by himself. And after he gets one down, he just prays, God, help me to get one more. And he goes back and gets one more. But the morning comes, and he finds his sergeant. And he saves his sergeant. They're getting, they're getting uh, shots fired at him. They're under heavy fire. And they both escape down the ridge. And all these people down below are just amazed and wonder and inspired. His, his captain comes to him and said, I apologize for ever calling you a coward. I had you wrong. You've done more for this effort than anyone ever could have. And the guys refuse to go back up on that ridge until you're ready to go with them. And you're watching this thing unfold, watching this. He saved 75 men that night. And it was clear like he had some supernatural kind of advantage or blessing in order to be able to do this thing. And in fact, it's a true story. It, it's, a, it's a true story. He wins, this coward, this man labeled a coward, wins this Medal of Honor for, from Harry Truman. And it's just this beautiful, inspiring picture. And that's really dramatic. But sometimes, I think our family life 
or our work life or our relationships with friends can feel a little bit like we're up on Hacksaw Ridge. We're taking shots. We're coming under heavy fire. Things are exploding around us and getting blown up. Who's going to be the peacemaker in these situations, in these worlds that, that we live in? I think simply refusing to respond with violence or being a conscientious objector doesn't automatically make us a peacemaker any more than the fact that my name is Jeff, which means God's peace, makes me a peacemaker. Or the fact that I'm a nine on the Enneagram, which is called the peacemaker. Right? That doesn't make me one. I still have to participate in making peace. And I think what Jesus is getting at is this. That love requires that we be willing to lay down our lives to love our enemies and make peace with them. And we may not get that all from the teaching, but those who were listening would see Jesus do this time and time again. And nowhere was it more evident or more beautifully displayed in a way that moves us with wonder than on the cross. The soldiers gathered their entire company together and they stripped Jesus of all his clothes. And they put on a scarlet robe and they put a crown of thorns in his head and they put a staff in his hand. And then they knelt down and they mocked him in worship. And then they took the staff and they beat him in the head over and over again, Matthew says. And they took him to be crucified and they, they nailed him to a cross And then the the rulers who were in charge started sneering at Jesus, continuing the mocking. You saved others. Let's see you save yourself if you're really God's chosen one. And then there's other soldiers on the ground. They're like rolling dice or or they're casting lots to see who gets Jesus' clothes when all of this wraps up. Even one of the criminals hanging next to Jesus starts hurling insults at Jesus and mocking him. And Jesus could have called on God's power to save him right then and there. And I believe his father would have saved him. He could have called on an army of angels to like rain down fire and and pull the nails right out of that cross. And he could have gone all like Raiders of the Lost Ark when they opened that ark and all that supernatural stuff's going around, right? He He could have done something like this, but he doesn't. See, that would have simply reinforced the way of the world, the way of vengeance, and violence. Instead, Jesus chooses the ultimate beautiful expression of God's love for us, and he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he surrenders his life, and at that very moment, the curtain in the temple that had always separated mankind from God is torn from top to bottom. And God through Jesus' sacrificial love, forgives and makes peace with mankind once and for all. And the earth shakes, and the rocks split open, and the dead come to life, and the commander of the army who was standing there witnessing this whole crucifixion, part of that whole deal, says in wonder, truly, this was the Son of God. What did Jesus teach? He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will become sons of God. They will become the children of God. Blessed are those who forgive and build bridges in a world full of conflict and hate and war, for they will be be the children of God. 
Isaiah called Jesus the Prince of Peace. He gave his life to make peace. More than, more than this peace of mind or spiritual peace, but, but to show us and to help us make a way for peace, real lasting peace in our world, not the way of the Roman Empire. Jesus says, but I give you peace. My peace I give to you, and I don't give it the same way the world gives. He calls on his followers to continue in a way of sacrificial love and forgiveness to bring peace with us and our enemies. So Christmas afternoon, after all the activities have wound down, there's a little bit of peace in the house, and I'm sitting in a recliner hanging out with some, some of our you know, uh, in-laws and, and having a little conversation. I think my wife's back in the, in the bedroom doing yoga. I don't know, she's doing some kind of peaceful thing, you know. And boys are downstairs, they're playing basketball, I can hear them, and they're, you know, uh, big brother, little brother, and little brother's no longer so little, and uh, big brother's trying to hold on to every bit of superiority he has, and I can hear it starting to get a little more intense as they keep playing, and um, little brother's not backing down. It's his time, right? His time has come, and um, they're going back and forth, and all of a sudden, it happens. Boom! And the entire house shakes. I mean, you could feel the house just shake, and I can hear them, and it's like, oh, 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 no. Eli went right through the wall. <laughs> Size of his right butt cheek. It's not small. And they're talking about it, and I can hear this whole discussion, and all I can think is, we just moved into this house. I spent the last seven or eight months getting another house ready to sell, doing all kinds of house projects, looking forward to the time I'm moving into this house with no projects to do, and now, on my vacation, I've got a project, and I just feel myself getting worked up, and I hear them walking up the stairs, and they walk right by me <laughs> to go find mom. Why? Because they know in the moment I'm their enemy. At least they are my enemies in that moment. And I, uh, I wasn't able to, to be able to say to them, I forgive you boys for you know not what you're doing. I'm not Jesus, not yet. But I was able to calm myself. I was able to listen to their story and hear them out. I was able to allow them to offer to fix the wall themselves, knowing full well that in a few days I would have to go and help them find the supplies and all these sorts of things and, and get, get finish it up and that sort of thing. And, but we were able to restore the peace. And even a couple days later, I was able to laugh about this issue. And I was able to forgive them and say, okay, this isn't that big a deal. And I don't know if they found it beautiful and wonderful, but for me, it was a step in the right direction, right? This is a way to train, right, within my own family, to train to practice forgiveness, for the next time I might have to forgive a real enemy. And we might think that we don't have enemies. But think again. Sometimes it's in our own family. Sometimes it's the neighbor whose dog is barking and keeping you up all night. Sometimes it might be the coach who's not playing your kid. Or the mom who's overbearing and controlling. Or maybe it's your father who was negligent or absent. Maybe it's your son or daughter who's just driving you crazy with how rebellious they're being, or your overly competitive brother or sister, or maybe it's your former Republican or Democrat friends, this climate that we live in today. Maybe it's a person driving who's cutting you off. That last one might just be me. <laughs> 
I'm working hard on, on forgiving the driving challenge. In fact, somebody pulled ahead of me the other day and got really slow after they cut me off, and I just said, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> Does not know how to drive. There is beauty and there is power in forgiveness. It's expression of love for an enemy. It's the power of Jesus' spirit and life at work in us. For while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, he sent his son to die for us. I love how Jimi Hendrix says it. He might not be Steven Tyler, but another great rock and roller. He says, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. Yes, that's exactly what Jesus' love did. It overcame the love of power through costly sacrifice to extend forgiveness to us and to bring us lasting peace with God. How do we practice this? Because this is something we need to practice. Three real quick things. First is this. Maybe begin by praying. That's what, that's what Jesus did. He begins by praying, Father, forgive them. Maybe pray about who are my enemies even? Who is it that I need to forgive? Jesus, show me. And, and you forgive them ahead of, ahead of me, for they don't know what they're doing. And, and um, forgiving, I, I realize, can, be, can feel more costly than what the original hurt that was even done to us what felt like. So second, maybe we need to shift our perspective and we need to remember how much God has forgiven us. And let, his, let him fill us with his own forgiveness and love so that we can then extend that to others. And third, if you're still not ready, Somebody wrote this. I thought this was beautiful. Maybe you need to forgive them just for yourself, not because of any expectations on their end, but because you don't want to let your unforgiveness be the poison that you drink, hoping that they're going to die from it. It's the mark of love. These are the marks of what it looks like for us to accomplish our mission at Orchard Hill Church, the marks of someone who's been with Jesus, who's been filled by Jesus, and it creates a sense of beauty and wonder that can change the world. Will you pray with me? Father, this is incredibly challenging for us. And um, Lord, I, I, I pray that we would first just come to a more full understanding of how you extend peace to us through your love and forgiveness, that we would receive that. Lord, if there are people in this room this morning, and I know that there are, who have not yet even maybe heard this or, or accepted this peace that you offer them, this forgiveness that you offer them, I pray that they would hear this, that they would hear that you love them and you forgive them and you want to have a relationship with them and they are at peace with you. For those of us who have received this, Lord, help us to know how we can begin to practice forgiveness, maybe first with our friends and our family, but to be able to extend it on to our enemies in a way that creates this sense of wonder, that changes a world, that blesses a broken world, that's uh, badly in need of your blessing. It's in your name we pray, amen.